Chapter One of I Will Repay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Annie Kirkpatrick. I Will Repay by Baroness Ortsy. Chapter One. Paris, seventeen ninety three. The Outrage. It would have been very difficult to say why Citizen Deroulede was quite so popular as he was. Still more difficult would it have been to state the reason why he remained immune from the prosecutions, which were being conducted at the rate of several scores a day, now against the moderate Gironde, anon against the fanatic Montaigne, until the whole of France was transformed into one gigantic prison that daily fed the guillotine. But Deroulade remained unscathed. Even Merlin's law of the suspect had so far failed to touch him. And when, last July, the murder of Marat brought an entire holocaust of victims to the guillotine, from Adam Lou, who would have put up a statue in honour of Charlotte Corday, with the inscription, Greater than Brutus, to Charlier, who would have had her publicly tortured and burned at the stake for her crime, Desrelaids alone said nothing, and was allowed to remain silent. A most seething time of that seething revolution. No one knew in the morning if his head would still be on his own shoulders in the evening, or if it would be held up by Citizen Samson the headsman, or the sans-culottes of Paris to see. Yet Desrelaids was allowed to go his own way. Marat once said of him, Il n'est pas dangereux. The phrase had been taken up. Within the precincts of the National Convention, Marat was still looked upon as the great protagonist of liberty, a martyr to his own convictions carried to the extreme, to squalor and dirt, to the downward leveling of man to what is the lowest type in humanity. And his sayings were still treasured up. Even the Girondins did not dare to attack his memory. Deb Marat was more powerful than his living presentment had been, and he had said that Desrelaids was not dangerous, not dangerous to republicanism, to liberty, to that downward leveling process, the tearing down of old traditions, and the annihilation of past pretensions. Desrelaids had once been very rich. He had had sufficient prudence to give away in good time that which, undoubtedly, would have been taken away from him later on. But when he gave willingly, at a time when France needed it most, and before she had learned how to help herself to what she wanted. And somehow, in this instance, France had not forgotten. An invisible fortress seemed to surround Citizen Desrelaids and keep his enemies at bay. They were few, but they existed. The National Convention trusted him. He was not dangerous to them. The people looked upon him as one of themselves, who gave whilst he had something to give. Who can gauge that most elusive of all things? Popularity. He lived a quiet life, and had never yielded to the omniprevalent temptation of writing pamphlets, but lived alone with his mother and Anne Mier, the little orphaned cousin whom old Madame de Roulet had taken care of, ever since the child could toddle. Everyone knew his house in the Rue École de Médecine, not at far from the one wherein Marat lived and died, the only solid stone house in the midst of a row of hovels, evil-smelling and squalid. The street was narrow then, as it is now and whilst paris was cutting off the heads of her children for the sake of liberty and fraternity she had no time to bother about cleanliness and sanitation rue école des médecines did little credit to the school after which it was named and it was a most unattractive crowd that usually thronged its uneven muddy pavements a neat gown a clean kerchief were quite an unusual sight down this way for anne mier seldom went out and old madame de roulade hardly ever left her room a good deal of brandy was being drunk at the two drinking-bars, one at each end of the long, narrow street, and by five o'clock in the afternoon it was undoubtedly best for the women to remain indoors. The crowd of dishevelled elderly Amazons who stood gossiping at the street corner could hardly be called women now. A ragged petticoat, a greased red kerchief round the head, 
a tattered, stained shift, to this pass of squalor and shame had liberty brought the daughters of France, and they jeered at any passer-by less filthy, less degraded than themselves. "'Ah, voyons l'aristo!' they shouted every time a man in decent clothes, a woman with tidy cap and apron, passed swiftly down the street. And the afternoons were very lively. There was always plenty to see. First and foremost, the long procession of tumbrils, winding its way from the prisons to the Place de la Révolution. The forty thousand sections of the Committee of Public Safety sent their quota, each in their turn, to the guillotine. At one time these tumbrils contained royal ladies and gentlemen, ci-devant dukes and princesses, aristocrats from every country in France, but now the stock was becoming exhausted. The wretched Queen Marie Antoinette still lingered in the temple with her son and daughter. Madame Elizabeth was still allowed to say her prayers in peace, but ci-devant dukes and counts were getting scarce. Those who had not perished at the hand of Citizen Sampson were plying some trade in Germany or England. There were aristocratic joiners, innkeepers, and hairdressers. The proudest names in France were hidden beneath trade signs in London and Hamburg. A good number owed their lives to that mysterious Scarlet Pimpernel, that unknown Englishman who had snatched scores of victims from the clutches of Tinville the prosecutor, and sent Monsieur Chauvin, baffled, back to France. Aristocrats were getting scarce, so it was now the turn of deputies of the National Convention, of men of letters, men of science or of art, men who had sent others to the guillotine a twelve-month ago, and men who had been loudest in defense of anarchy and its reign of terror. They had revolutionized the calendar. The citizen deputies, and every good citizen of France, called this 19th day of August 1793, the second fructidor of the year one of the new era. At six o'clock on that afternoon, a young girl suddenly turned the angle of the Rue École de Médicine, and after looking quickly to the right and left, she began deliberately walking down the narrow street. It was crowded just then. Groups of excited women stood jabbering before every doorway. It was the homecoming hour after the usual spectacle on the Place de la Révolution. The men had paused at the various drinking booths, crowding the women out. It would be the turn of these Amazons next, at the brandy bars. For the moment they were left to gossip and to jeer at the passer-by. At first the young girl did not seem to heed them. She walked quickly along, looking defiantly before her, carrying her head erect and stepping carefully from cobblestone to cobblestone, avoiding the mud which could have dirtied her dainty shoes. The Herodans passed the time of day to her, and the time of day meant some obscure remark unfit for women's ears. The young girl wore a simple grey dress, with fine lawn kerchief neatly folded across her bosom, a large hat with flowing ribbons set above the fairest face that ever gladdened men's eyes to see. Fairer still it would have been, but for the look of determination which made it seem hard and old for the girl's years. She wore the tricolor scarf around her waist, else she had been more seriously molested ere now. But the Republican colors were her safeguard. While she walked quietly along, no one could harm her. Then, suddenly, a curious impulse seemed to seize her. It was just outside the large stone house belonging to Citizen Deputy Desrelaides. She had so far taken no notice of the groups of women which she had come across. When they obstructed the footway, she had calmly stepped out into the middle of the road. It was wise and prudent, for she could close her ears to obscene language and need pay no heed to insult. Suddenly she threw up her head defiantly. "'Would you please let me pass?' she said loudly, as a disheveled Amazon stood before her with arms akimbo, glancing sarcastically at the lace petticoat which just peeped beneath the young girl's simple grey frock. "'Let her pass! Let her pass! Oh, ho, ho!' laughed the old woman. 
turning to the nearest group of idlers and apostrophizing them with a loud oath. Did you know, citizeness, that this street had been specifically made for Aristos to pass along? I am in a hurry. Will you let me pass at once? commanded the young girl, tapping her foot impatiently on the ground. There was the whole width of the street on her right, plenty of room for her to walk along. It seemed positive madness to provoke a quarrel single-handed against this noisy group of excited females just home from the ghastly spectacle around the guillotine. And yet she seemed to do it willfully, as if coming to the end of her patience, all her proud aristocratic blood in revolt against this evil-smelling crowd which surrounded her. Half-tipsy men and noisome naked urchins seemed to have sprung from everywhere. "'Oh, quel aristo!' they shouted with ironical astonishment, gazing at the young girl's face, fingering her gown, thrusting begrimed, hate-distorted faces close to her own. Instinctively she recoiled and backed towards the house immediately on her left. It was adorned with a porch made of stout oak beams, with a tiled roof, an iron lantern descended from this, and there was a stone parapet below, and a few steps at right angles from the pavement led up to the massive door. On these steps the young girl had taken refuge. Proud, defiant, she confronted the howling mob which she had so willfully provoked. "'Of a truth, citizeness, Margot, that grey dress would become you well,' suggested a young man, whose red cap hung in tatters over an evil and dissolute-looking face. "'And all that fine lace would make a splendid jabot round the Risto's neck when Citizen Sampson holds up her head for us to see.' added another as with mock elegance he stooped and with two very grimy fingers slightly raised the young girl's grey frock displaying the laced edge petticoat beneath a volley of oaths and loud ironical laughter greeted this sally tis mighty fine lace to be thus hidden away commented an elderly harridan now would you believe it my fine madame but my legs are bare underneath my kirtle and dirty too i'll lay a wager laughed another soap is dear in paris just now the lace on the aristo's kerchief would pay the baker's bill of a whole family for a month shouted an excited voice heat and brandy further addled the brains of this group of french citizens hatred gleamed out of every eye outrage was imminent the young girl seemed to know it but she remained defiant and self-possessed gradually stepping back and back up the steps closely followed by her assailants to the jew with the gewgaw then shouted a thin haggard female viciously as she suddenly clutched at the young girl's kerchief and with a mocking triumphant laugh tore it from her bosom this outrage seemed to be the signal for the breaking down of the final barriers which ordinary decency should have raised the language and vituperation became such that no chronicler could record the girl's dainty white neck her clear skin the refined contour of shoulders and bust seemed to have aroused the deadliest lust of hate in these wretched creatures rendered bestial by famine and squalor it seemed almost as if no one would vie with the other in seeking for words which would most offend these small aristocratic ears the young girl was now crouching against the doorway her hands held up to her ears to shut out the awful words she did not seem frightened only appalled at the terrible volcano which she had provoked suddenly a miserable harridan struck her straight in the face with hard grimy fist and a long shout of exultation greeted this monstrous deed then only did the girl seem to lose her self-control a moi she shouted loudly whilst hammering with both hands against the massive doorway 
à moi murder murder citoyen Déroulède, à moi but her terror was greeted with renewed glee by her assailants they were now roused to the highest point of frenzy the crowd of brutes would in the next moment have torn the helpless girl from her place of refuge and dragged her into the mire an outraged prey for the satisfaction of an ungovernable hate but just as half a dozen pairs of talon-like hands clutched frantically at her skirts the door behind her was quickly opened she felt her arm seized firmly and herself dragged swiftly within the shelter of the threshold her senses overwrought by the terrible adventure which she had just gone through were threatening to reel she heard the massive door close shutting out the yells of baffled rage the ironical laughter the obscene words which sounded in her ears like the shrieks of dante's damned she could not see her rescuer for the hall into which he had hastily dragged her was only dimly lighted but a peremptory voice said quickly up the stairs the room straight in front of you my mother is there go quickly she had fallen to her knees cowering against the heavy oak beam which supported the ceiling and was straining her eyes to catch sight of the man to whom at this moment she perhaps owed more than her life but he was standing against the doorway with his hand on the latch what are you going to do she murmured prevent their breaking into my house in order to drag you out of it he replied quietly so i pray you do as i bid you mechanically she obeyed him drew herself to her feet and turning down the stairs began slowly to mount the shallow steps her knees were shaking under her her whole body was trembling with horror at the awesome crisis she had just traversed she dared not look back at her rescuer her head was bent and her lips were murmuring half-audible words as she went outside the hooting and yelling was becoming louder and louder enraged fists were hammering violently against the stout oak door at the top of the stairs moved by an irresistible impulse she turned and looked into the hall she saw his figure dimly outlined in the gloom one hand on the latch his head thrown back to watch her movements a door stood ajar immediately in front of her she pushed it open and went within at that moment he too opened the door below the shrieks of the howling mob once more resounded close to her ears it seemed as if they had surrounded him she wondered what was happening and marvelled how he dared to face that awful crowd alone the room into which she had entered was gay and cheerful-looking with its dainty chintz hangings and graceful elegant pieces of furniture the young girl looked up as a kindly voice said to her from out of the depths of a capacious armchair come in come in my dear and close the door behind you did those wretches attack you never mind paul will speak to them come here my dear and sit down there's no cause now for fear without a word the young girl came forward she seemed to be walking in a dream the chintz hangings to be swaying ghost-like around her the yells and shrieks below to come from the very bowels of the earth the old lady continued to prattle on she had taken the girl's hand in hers and was gently forcing her down on to a low stool beside her armchair she was talking about paul and said something about anne Mier, and then about the national convention and those beasts and savages but mostly about paul the noise outside had subsided the girl felt strangely sick and tired her head seemed to be whirling around the furniture to be dancing around her the old lady's face looked at her through a swaying veil and then tired nature was having her way at last she folded the quivering young body in her motherly arms and wrapped the aching senses beneath her merciful mantle of unconsciousness End of chapter one